0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a series about how space technology, colonization, and exploration are transforming our solar system. Good day, Pete. Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast.
1: Fantastic. I've always wanted to be on the frontier. Awesome. Yeah, are you enjoying... It was, in but it was in the 60s, and that's the other that just last century, not the one before that, when they found gold. So I, I've had to really search for frontiers like scuba diving and mountain climbing and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm there, I'm ready to help you.
0: Amazing. Uh, yeah, there's something really fascinating about the frontier that, uh, really, uh, engrosses us in, and and. It immerses us into the frontier.
1: Um, And I believe that's a characteristic of humanity. And so the movement off planet has multiple levels of uh, intrigue. One is we really have to move off planet to save the species. Uh, Something catastrophic will happen. So we've got to do that. But there's also the spirit. You know, if we're exploring, the human spirit is uplifted. And so if we have a few people on the moon and a few people going to Mars and stuff like that, the young people will look up and say, oh, that's an interesting life, you know, and they'll have hope for the future. So I think the frontier is remarkable. And in today's world, the frontier is right on your television screen or your computer screen. So everybody's going to be involved, no matter where you are in the world. Uh, It's not like Frontier in the old centuries where you came back after three or four years and then told stories in a pub. You know, it's it's all time, you know, been the first women touchdown on the moon for NASA's Artemis program. That'll be global, you know, it'll be it'll be remarkable.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hope they can make the 2024 deadline, but um. I don't know. It sounds like these these space elevators could be one of the most meaningful avenues and bridges toward getting to the frontier.
1: I believe that's an understatement. It turns out a space infrastructure that's permanent will enable missions that essentially can't be done with rockets. And I'm going to talk about that in my talk, too. But the, the kicker is if you have a permanent infrastructure, similar to a bridge like the golden gate bridge going across to san francisco it's permanent and you know it's going to be there you just go up and down traverse the space and it's just going to be a remarkable stimulus for economic development and so the economic question is not really how much does the bridge cost because that's trivial it's what will happen when the bridge exists what type of enterprise will develop what type of activities will occur and so that's the economic growth in the future that counts not the cost of the stupid bridge
0: yeah and um what what exactly are we talking about you know what is this uh, space elevator
1: thing (laughs) let me jump into a few points i've just got a a few words that i've developed and don't try to cut down Uh, The time it takes to explain what a space elevator is, what the remarkable aspects are, where we are in the development of the space elevator and, you know, and how it's coming along. So let me just, you know, talk for a few minutes here. I'd like to welcome everybody. Uh, I am pleased as a president of the International Space Elevator Consortium to present the current status of the modern day elevator inside this Frontier Space podcast. My background is simple. I have 50 plus years within the space arena, and I have been at the beginning of two other successful mega projects. I have tested, broken, fixed, launched, and operated space systems. Now I am passionate about and lead a team that will build a space elevator, permanent space infrastructure. My goal today is to explain what the modern day space elevator is and its vision for the future while bringing the listener up to speed on progress, please remember that much of the background information that I am using here is presented on our website in a form of year-long studies uh, reports, study reports such as the one entitled "Today's Space Elevator." These are available in PDF downloads for free at isic.org, isec.org. I-S-E-C.org. Much of your questions will have been explained in many of these documents, especially the recent working document entitled Starting Now, Space Elevators Entering the Engineering Development. Now that's going to be a document that is continually updated because it's an engineering document. This one also answers so many questions such as how are we going to operate safely in the atmosphere? How about in the space debris environment or at GEO and beyond? Many, many of those questions are just sitting there with some answers. Let's start by understanding the essence of the modern day space elevator. If one were to think of space elevators as evolutionary and humankind's departure from the Earth, then one starts to recognize that we really, with, with all journey, uh, journeys, have a classic first step. The point is, we are taking that first step now by moving into the second phase of developmental programs, the big time testing arena. The space elevator is also revolutionary in that it changes the equation of delivery. The dynamics of massive tonnage versus the limiting rocket equation becomes a liberating movement of logistics cargo by electricity for fulfilling customer needs. It has so many promises and is seen as an enabler for so many dreams that it must be pursued. But first, let's talk about one example that will explain what this revolutionary step is and how space elevators can enable a program. We just recently completed a study called The Greening uh, Green Road to Space. And we looked at the programs that could be enabled by a space elevator that cannot be reasonably done in a, in a reasonable time with the restrictions of the rocket equation. It's called the space-based solar power program. We looked at this because if we implement the space solar power program, the health of the earth's environment will be improved significantly. It turns out that John Mankins, Dr. Mankins, who's running a lot of the uh, SSP programs, has stated that the extensive SSP program can stop global warming. We're talking stop and possibly reverse it. Previously, the uh, SSP experts recognized two significant development factors. One is a massive program with acres of solar cells at GEO would require 5 million tons delivered to GEO. Each individual prototype satellite that they have, that they're talking about today, is 10,000 tons. Now, let's put this in perspective. We've only lifted off 22,000 tons in the history of mankind from 57. So each satellite in the SSP program is half of what we've done in the past. Now, let's go back to the statement. John Mankins believes that he can stop global warming. Well, even if he just slows it down, that would be a tremendous opportunity. That's an example of a program that can be stopped. I mean, it can be implemented by space elevators. But first, what is a space elevator? A space elevator can be thought of as a vertical railroad into space, a permanent infrastructure. It's a tether that stretches from the ground to the apex anchor, and currently we think of the apex anchor at 100,000 kilometers altitude. The elevator cars, they're called tether climbers, would be powered by electricity traveling up and down the tether to carry cargo and eventually humans through and from space. We would first have a robotic one and then develop extra safety factors for humans. The space elevator is the most promising transportation infrastructure on the drawing boards today, combining scalability, low-cost, quality of ride, massive payloads, throughput, and safety to deliver truly commercial-grade space access. The massive movement credibility uh, capability, as well as the low-cost, ensures that the infrastructure approach is the correct one. The rotation of the Earth keeps the tether taut and capable of supporting climbers. The climbers travel at speeds comparable to fast trains and carry no fuel on board. They are powered by sunlight. Thus, the green road to space. The vision of the future is simple. Six space elevators dispersed around the equator in open ocean, supplying 14 tons to Geo per day per space elevator, or 30,000 tons per year. Remember the human race has only put up 22,000 tons. So this is a remarkable development. We're gonna have a capability when it reaches the operational uh, level of putting more mass in one year than we've ever done in our past. Then in the future we see the capability growing to like 200,000 tons per year. Let's put that in perspective. Mr. Musk wants to move 1 million tons to Mars. He wants to do it at 100 tons per vehicle. But now remember, each one of those vehicles has four other ones to support it before it can go to Mars. So that's five uh, launches, and then you get 100 metric tons to Mars. Well, divide that into a million. That's a lot of launches. It turns out we should be able to do Mars support in three quarters i mean in in like uh let's see five years six years so the realization is that we can raise payloads to geo and beyond with electricity and can now this is the magic word we can enable missions that are unrealistic today massive movement of uh, cargo and we do it in a green manner uh, supporting the environment on the earth Okay, as we go through these discussions today, I'd like you to remember a few things. One is space elevators can be built. And we also have concluded that space elevators are necessary. Now, we've come up with the word essential in today's world. The last year, essentials become a very interesting word. We believe space elevators are essential to fulfill the missions of many. We do a space elevator in a parallel development with advanced rockets because we want to have both programs with have strengths. So we want to have a compatible and complementary dual program. Ours would be a green road to space and rockets would move people rapidly through the radiation belt and supply all the different orbits that rockets have been very good at in the past. We want to be the second lane in the road to space that Mr. Bezos is building and also NASA, the Russians, the Chinese, everybody else's building. The first statement is easy to discuss. Our ISIC team has been addressing the technological feasibility situation since 2008. In recent times, the team has begun an open dialogue with with those members of industry, academia and others who could be the deliverers of the different space elevator solutions. Uh, these readiness assessments that we have looked at show that we are ready to proceed. I believe the space elevator is closer than most people think because we have entered the engineering development phase. Now, that's the phase where you do the big testing at the segment level. So we're going to have to set up demonstrations where we show the tether, demonstrations where we show the tether climber, and things like that. But we are at that stage. We are ready to start testing. The ISAC community believes strongly that it is necessary to initiate development now. The space elevator research has grown the the body of knowledge exponentially since 98. We're entering the phase where testing will be the mainstream for progress. Much to do, of course. Many challenges, of course. But we need to start that. When initiating mega projects, it is important to always remember the vision that is driving the space elevator community. We have a vision that says space elevators are a green road to space while they enable humanity's most important missions by moving massive tonnage to geo and beyond. So we're green and we enable missions. We believe that we move into the third decade of this century. The implementation of the space elevator architecture is essential to support humans' needs and dreams now. The supporting rationale is that the promises of space elevators are so uh, revolutionary, massive cargo, daily routine, rapid transit uh, to geo and beyond. The second point is we can now build a space elevator as we have a tether material that has shown that it can be produced in a roll-to-roll operation. And it will be available for construction. In addition, the space elevators are essential to the future of humankind. We see a robust movement off planet in so many ways with evolutionary friendly missions and robust colony development. Our mission is to move massive cargo in a green manner to geo and beyond while using advanced rockets to move people in critical cargo. What I'm going to discuss now is a strategy of combining the strengths of both rockets and space elevators. By having the permanent infrastructure to move cargo, the growth of missions is assured. The title of this future strategy is dual space access architecture, where future rockets and elevators are both compatible and complementary in fulfilling the missions of the future. Remember, the capability and capacity of space elevators is revolutionary in movement of mass. Just at the beginning, when we get going, we'll be putting 30,000 tons to geo and beyond. As we deliver to geo and beyond, we won't be restricted by the rocket equation the 4% to Leo, 2% to, to geo, and a half a percent of the launch pad mass to the surface of the moon or Mars. Dual space access architecture takes the strengths of both of those programs and applies them to the future. Now let's go back. Let's look and put it in perspective. The current dreams and visions that are out there. Just a few of them. Now, Mr. Bezos has been quoted as saying he wants millions of people living and working in space. And this one's one I like. He's recently started saying He's going to build the road to space for the next generation. He's going to build a road to space. He's got his new Glenn vehicle coming along nicely. Mr. Musk just makes it simple. He's going to create multi-planetary species. That's a simple goal. That's the mission of SpaceX, by the way. Mr. Bridenstine, administrator of NASA, previous one, we don't have one right now, has said that NASA will land the first woman and the next man on the moon by 2024. I encourage this. I was there when NASA met the uh, the deadline of uh, 1969. We might be able to do that. NASA might be able to do that. But if they miss it by a year or two, who cares? The significance of putting people back on the moon is remarkable and that's their vision. And then the National Space Society is a neat little organization and They've been saying for 50 years, they want people living and working in thriving communities beyond the earth, such as the Lunar Village, it's now a top, hot topic, and the L5 Society. Well, to ensure we parallel with these visionaries, we're taking the following steps. The first thing we're doing is we're developing a strategy where rockets and space elevators work together. Okay, the dual space access approach. The second thing we're doing is realizing that there's massive cargo movement opportunity if we use space elevators or a permanent infrastructure to go to space. And then we've developed this vision that's compatible with all these thoughts I've talked about over the last five minutes. The first one is space elevators to the green road to space. And the second part of that is we enable humanity's most important missions by moving massive tonnage to geo and beyond. Now we have a new report that will be out in the next month. It's called The Green Road to Space and it talks about some of these missions. Space solar power, I've mentioned before, movement to Mars. Uh, In addition, we ought to really be able to get rid of high energy, high level nuclear waste. There are so many missions that could be done with a permanent infrastructure that can't be done today. So we can accomplish missions safely, routinely, inexpensively, daily and they're environmentally neutral. So the realization is that space elevators are the second lane in Mr. Bezos's road to space. Now, those are the basic thoughts to kind of set the stage for questions and answers. And I'm open to all kinds of little questions and queries. What would you like to talk about?
0: Thanks, Pete. Uh, uh... Love to see everything you guys have accomplished and, and the journey you're on. Um, I've suddenly noticed, um, you know, I've started looking at the past fifty years of the rocket industry a bit different after uh, learning about the space elevator and all the benefits.
1: Yes, it it turns out that. I am a proponent of rockets. I love rockets. Mr. Musk is doing just a revolutionary job in his approach to movement of cargo. And uh, he's right. He's got so many things going on. NASA's uh, program of SLS is excellent. They're gonna move people and put them on the surface of the moon. Uh, There are one or two little problems with that in that none of the rocket is reusable and Mr. Musk and Mr. Uh, Bezos have shown that reusability is kind of like essential to make a, an industry that's, uh, you know, less expensive, more routine, launching every day, things like that. So there's tremendous need in the rocket industry to modernize and, and make sure that it's a future. And I have great hopes for rockets. Rockets will be there all the time. We need rockets to do all kinds of things. And I really salute Mr. Musk and Mr. Bezos, and Mr. Well, Mr. Bridesign's gone now, but the administration of NASA and the NASA activities, because they're going very big time. But because we have discovered a material and it's in the laboratory and has been shown to be able to produce, then we now have a capability to build the space elevator. So that changes the equation of movement of cargo off the planet. Now, I'd much prefer teleportation, okay, but we're not quite there yet. And uh, there are other ways, but the space elevator moves huge masses. And then, now here's the thing, it not only, as in a parallel, it not only takes the cargo through the Suez Canal, but when it gets to the other end of the Suez Canal, it shoots it off at tremendous velocity so it could get to, say, Japan in, in 15 minutes. Uh, So it does, not only does it take it up to a high location, but it then provides tremendous energy so that it can go places. We've had a study with Arizona State University, and we published a report on it called the Space, Space Elevators, the Transportation Story of the 21st Century. And we go into interplanetary flight and talk about going to Mars. Space elevators can release every day toward Mars because we're going fast. Now, right now we have to wait 26 months so that the planets align so we can use a minimum energy path to get there if we want to move a lot of mass. So we wait 26 months to send stuff to Mars. Well, with the space elevator, you can release every day. Now, it doesn't get there immediately. Sometimes you take the fast route when the planets align there in 61 days. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The old-fashioned way is seven and a half to nine months. So we can get there in 61 days. Other trips might go and take 130 days or 200 days or even 400. So the logistician would put hammers and nails on the trip that takes 400 days and pizza on the trip that takes 61 days. So the space elevator can send mass daily and can uh, release at very high velocity so it can get there rapidly. So the change in paradigm is remarkable. It's not just we're moving mass. It's we're adding tremendous energy to it when it gets up there.
0: That's incredible. Um,
1: It really is. Yeah, And
0: I remember, I recall uh, um, watching one of your YouTube videos about, um, the amount of energy at the release or or the apex of of the space elevator um to to be around twice as much energy at at release with a delta v of of around 7.76
1: kilometers per second yes well to take that thought even further which was beyond me i used to teach orbits way back in the uh last century anyway (laughs) Who said that? Anyway, I taught uh, uh, orbits in the old days, and I've been working with a uh, gentleman named uh, uh, Dr. Matthew Peake at Arizona State University. He's an uh, associate professor there, and he teaches orbits. So he got really interested in this whole space elevator thing, and we've done some research with him and had some honors students get some uh, good good points and all that kind of good stuff. But the real kicker is he's been playing with the calculus in working the equations. And he just published a document, I think it's like 30 pages with the Acta Astronomica uh, uh, big book they published and uh, they did it on com also. And he stated basically that I can get velocities well in excess of 15 kilometers per second out of my, base elevator, because he's going to do it differently. I'll just explain one of the interesting approaches. He has four tiers. The way I was thinking about it is tier zero. That's just the baseline. You take it up to the apex anchor and you stop it there and you refuel it and you release. So that's, that's basically the velocity of the apex anchor. What he wants to do is release it from the geosynchronous and have it go along the string all the way out to the apex anchor, but have it accelerate all the way. In other words, just don't have any friction. or Just have it accelerate as it goes out. So now you're doing the toss as well as the acceleration outward. And it gets to tremendous velocity. And he can release it there. And he escapes the solar system with ease. Just leave the solar system. no, No fuel required. In addition, he's got two more tiers that are more sophisticated about changing the inclination so he can take it from the We're in the equatorial plane of the earth, but the equatorial plane of the earth is not on the ecliptic plane of the sun where all the planets are. So we can have high velocity, but we have to time our release so that it can be consistent with where the planets are. Now it turns out that Dr. Pete has figured out how to change the angle of release from the apex anchor and do a joint uh, ecliptic plane release instead of just an equatorial plane release fascinating discussion but what it does is it opens up so that he can offer any planetary scientist to any planet within a reasonable time every day Now, if you know anything about going to the other planets the answer is we can't get there most of the time and when we have an opportunity it usually takes seven or eight years to get to any of the outer planets and he's saying I can get them there very fast at fifteen kilometers per second release. You know, you could be there in time. So he could set up a bus schedule going to all the planets from the space elevator, releasing daily. Well, I look forward
0: to hearing those discussions. Um, it's exciting, and, and and for comparison, the um, uh, rockets t- rockets typically have a delta v of. of Three kilometers per second um, at the apex, or, or um, a, a departing Earth's atmosphere, and, and but uh, would imagine there might be a. Uh, if you're departing at 15 kilometers a second,
1: it might be a challenge of slowing down upon arrival. <laughs> oh, oh, I agree completely. Uh, but the, see, the kicker is I can bigger I can raise with my payload as big a rocket engine as I need and bring along all the fuel I need on the space elevator and assemble it at the uh, apex anchor. And then I can have this big, huge rocket to slow me down. And it costs me nothing because I just raise it up, attach it to the payload. You know, so it's raising mass to high energy levels at high altitude enable you to do missions you can't do otherwise. And by the way, I can bring up a rocket engine. I could bring up, you know, a heater. I could bring up the uh, extra solar cells. I could bring up, you know, so you can assemble your satellite at the top versus being restricted to do it in JPL and then put it in a box and, and have it delivered to, uh, you know, with all the restrictions of, of energy and everything else. So it really opens up the box like nobody's business. I mean, just really remarkable. We haven't, by the way, we really haven't addressed that. We've, we've discovered it. <laughs> we came to these conclusions, but we really haven't discussed with planetary scientists the opportunity to do that. Interesting.
0: Um, so the current cost to orbit is around, uh, you know, 3500 to $2,500 per per. Kilogram, I I believe to orbit, and so the a, a space elevator could um, enable as little as twenty five dollars per pound. There.
1: Okay, uh, let's let's talk cost per kilogram. Okay, no, let's not talk. <laughs> okay, let me, let me let me put it in perspective. I think whoever wants to argue cost can argue with me all day long, and I'm going to win. I don't have any numbers to prove that. I can't win that. They can do any number they want. Mr. Musk is going to lower his cost tremendously. It would not surprise me if it's 1500 per kilogram. It just doesn't bother me a bit that he's going to have cheap launches. That's excellent. I encourage him to do that. Now, what does the cost of a kilogram cost on a space elevator? I really don't know. And I don't care because it's going to be low. But what's the economic return from a space elevator? That is going to be remarkable. The economic return of putting a space elevator will be the creation of a moon village or the creation of a colony on Mars or the creation of a commercial business at geosynchronous or the creation of a hotel at 400 kilometers up or the creation. The space elevator is an infrastructure. When you put an infrastructure in place, it enables business. And of course, the transportation costs go down tremendously because it's an infrastructure. And you have repeatability and you don't have to put up new train tracks. You don't put up new bridges. It's there. So the argument of cost was one of our best arguments from 1998 to about 2010 or 12. And we could always beat everybody else. Now Mr. Musk has come up with phenomenal numbers and I applaud his capability and what he's doing. I mean, it's just remarkable. By the way, everybody else is trying to compete with them. So they're working to make sure their rockets are reusable and all that kind of stuff. And I applaud that movement inside the rocket arena. We need lower price access to space and they're gonna do a good job. But I'll just argue all day long that the permanent infrastructure in space will be cheaper than individual events. And so I don't know the numbers. I don't have them in my pocket. We've done studies. We've said about $15 million for the completion in about 10 years to do it. And we'll move a lot of mass. You do the math. Uh, I don't know what the answers are. But we're no longer discussing or arguing or comparing Price to geosynchronous and beyond, we're stating that the economics of a bridge into space will change the dynamics of cost.
0: Yeah, they're they're both highly complementary or, or complementary toward um, you know everything and anything and in, in, uh, on Earth and and throughout the solar system um, and. Recall reading in an email um, and online that SpaceX is aiming for nine dollars per uh, per pound to low Earth orbit, um, and so, so it sounds like they're they're competitive with uh, the, the space elevator. Um, it, that would be their kind of, uh, I don't know, long term um, goal and. But but then again, you know that's that's uh, one point two million kilograms of of liquid propellant per per launch, and um, it sounds like there are a lot of environmental benefits for for the space elevator too.
1: Yes, in fact, the discussion in our last my last opportunity uh, in a uh, in a webinar, uh, the question came up: uh, Well, we can do it so much cheaper into Leo, but. We should start talking about the total cost for activities in Leo and activities going to Geo and beyond. I'd like to compare to go to Geo and beyond. That way, it's simple. We don't do Leo. We just can't do it very well. We're in an equatorial plane. We release something any place along the uh, train. Uh, it goes into equatorial orbit. So we'd have to have a rocket to move it into. So it's really smarter to go rockets to lower the orbit. So we really don't care about Leo, but but let's just talk about the cost of doing a single launch, or the cost of doing a single liftoff. The answer is there's the uh, the physical uh, dollars per kilogram. That's a cost. There's the environmental impact. There's the uh, the uh, increase in uh, low Earth orbiting debris, because rockets, even if you have fully reusable, they drop bolts and everything else off and stuff like that. So we've got to worry about that. So there are lots of issues that deal with the total, in quotes, cost of doing a mission. And so the idea of having a permanent infrastructure where you just drive up in a boat, you take the payload and put it in a box, and the box goes to space, uh, is so green. I mean, the environmental impact is actually negative because we've sequestered all that carbon in the tether. Uh, so we laugh about that. We've taken a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere, put it in the tether. And, uh, and then there's the aspect of uh, not burning rocket fuel to gain energy and gain altitude. And so if you compare the total cost, environmental as well as price, as well as opportunity of event in the consumption of fuel and you know all that kind of stuff then i'll play with anybody i'll compare with anybody and it's fine we we can argue six ways to sunday but my position is we need both we need rockets and we need space elevators excellent
0: and um i was wondering how much mass and volume uh per elevator or pod could the first
1: uh space elevators lift, lift okay to orbit. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that the, the answer is we don't know <laughs> okay why is that we don't have funding yet so we don't have a program yet so we don't have final engineering answers that come from customer demands you know to really have an engineering program you need to say what does a customer want okay so you know so the answer is up in the air now but Let's be a little bit firmer than that. We've got really good, smart people that have been working this, and we took another approach. Instead of looking at customer demand down to what we need, we looked at what's the capability of the tether, material strength. What can it hold between the geosynchronous altitude and the surface of the ocean? So it's a mass consideration. So we looked at the strength of materials and the material that we would use, And then looked at the size of tether climbers to do that. Then we asked the engineers, if I could do, let's just pick a number, 20 metric tons. Oh, by the way, that's what Dr. Brad Edwards picked in 1999 and 2000. So we've been consistent with that. And all the studies we've done have confirmed that Brad had the right answer, preliminary, the right preliminary answer. Okay, so we've consistently come up with 20 metric tons as the mass of the tethered climber with payload. And then we asked the good engineers, if we have 20 metric tons allowed to be in the tethered climber, how much needs to be in motor, battery, wheels, you know, the, the box around it and everything else. So we broke it down as 20 metric tons allowed, what do we need for mass to raise the climber? The answer comes out six metric tons apparatus to move the tether, I mean to move. So if you say six from 20, that means you have 14 metric tons of payload capacity. And it was driven by the engineering calculations with mass and tether uh, capability and things like that. And so we did that study in 2013 we showed how space solar powers could be spread, solar panels could be spread out to get the required energy the energy would drive the motor we had the motor size which would drive the wheels and the wheels gripping the tether and so that's the number we came up with as i said earlier we don't have a big set of money to finalize customer needs and then finalize designs we're at the preliminary we have answers now we've got to set up a program, get funding, and go from there.
0: You briefly mentioned the carbon sequestration that would be a benefit from the manufacture of of the cable or or tether. Um, could you elaborate more on?
1: Well, the, the cable the manufacturing is, and is called single crystal graphene at the present time. Now, I just learned from the graphene journal that there are multiple hundreds of materials that fall into the category of two-dimensional. This is a brand new material characteristic that was discovered in 2004, Nobel Prize in 2010. And What it is is a single atom thick, single material that is grown horizontally and you pull it out of the furnace and put more carbon in the left side and you pull it out to the right. And my friend, uh, Adrian Nixon, who is an editor for the journal, a royal chemist in in England, he claims that he could make it 100,000 kilometers long. Now, that would be a single molecule. It just blows my mind. This is all new. This is all created in the last three to four years. And he said, you just pull it out and continue to put it on a roll. And, uh, you know, and I was kind of laughing about them. And then we had a meeting about three weeks ago with a company in Oak Ridge, and they showed how they have a real to real production capability of polycrystalline graphene, which is very close to ours, what we need, but it's the same process. So uh, the chemist there said she could probably do it the same way. Of course, this is embryonic and they got to really work on it and everything else. There's a lot to be done. But the idea is it's a single molecule thick and as long as you want it and as wide as you want it. You just set up the process. Now, that's a single molecule thick. For a tether, we probably need something like a thousand layers or something like that. So we have a long way to go to define the material characteristics to be presented in the way that's optimum for a tether for a space elevator. I have no doubt that there's going to be some stumbling blocks and everything else as we go. But my friend who's, who's running that arena and trying to help understand it says that he sees no real significant showstoppers for having a space elevator tether ready when we need it. And if we have a 10-year cycle, that means the tether has got to be ready in like nine years or so. And of course, we'd want to be testing it well before that. So that might be five years from now. And then, of course, we'd have to do testing of the material in the state that we need it. So we do preliminary testing and then we do final testing, you know, say eight years from now or something like that. There are so many questions, so many issues. But the point is, we shouldn't be scared about engineering development of a new project when the benefits are so remarkable, I mean, we're going to enable movement off planet. We're going to enable.
0: Love it. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that space elevators ha- have largely been excluded from from most movies. Uh, there's there's one recent movie with with space elevators,
1: "Ad uh, Ad Astra" from 2019. So. Right. Well, if you read science fiction, there's a lot of science fiction about it. But what's exciting about a space elevator? Well, blowing it up and having things fall and stuff like that. You know, it's just that's why they have people blowing up buildings and stadiums with people in them and stuff like that. That's the exciting part. The responsibility of the owner of the space elevator is to make sure it's safe. And of course, we'll have all the standard rules for safety and all that kind of stuff. We'll inspect all the payloads, make sure nothing's going to play up, blow up on payloads and all that kind of stuff. But you know, you still have terrorism, so you're going to have to have a special ops type force, not special, not a government force, but you know, a, a, a protection force, security force to make sure that nobody does that. I don't, I don't really see a problem with that because we're going to put it in the middle of the Pacific and it's gonna be going straight up. And if you run an airplane into it, it's going just sever the wing off. It's not gonna hurt the space elevator. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, running an airplane in, it's not a good idea. Uh, and so they'd have to attack the Earth port. And that's when we have security forces for that.
0: Nice, and so, you mentioned the middle of the Pacific, uh, but, but why should they, the space elevators be positioned along the equator?
1: Okay, the, along the equator is very simple answer. You're rotating the Earth, and you want the string to come out from the center of the Earth out as far as you need it, and as a rotation to keep the apex anchor pulling it and have a stiff thing. If you take it off the equator, uh, now we're getting into math and all that, if you take it off the equator at the bottom and move it north or south, there's a cosine factor there on loss of payload capability lift because you're no longer just raising it up you're actually moving it left right and adding different capabilities so you lose payload capacity by moving it off of zero latitude and so we always thought we would just put it on on the equator someplace And then we've always thought that if it's in the middle of the ocean, out in the Pacific, we have a tremendous benefit for environment. Turns out there are places in the Pacific that have not seen any lightning in 100 years, has never seen a hurricane because the hurricanes work on the, the, beyond the, you know, above and below the equator where they get wind motion. And so you haven't ever seen a hurricane, you don't have uh, any clouds forming and rain because there's no mountains to force air up and all that kind of stuff so it really is a pacific part of the pacific there's equivalent places in the atlantic and in the uh the china sea but the indian ocean and so there are equivalent places around the globe that could have uh, could support space elevators and have minimum weather minimum uh activities uh rogue waves they've never seen it in those areas you know so so, it's, it's really a remarkable place, basically south of Honolulu, someplace on the border. Besides, as a scuba diver, I'd love to go down there and try that. <laughs> hey,
0: you were mentioning you have like uh, hundreds of dives.
1: Yeah, multiple hundreds. Yeah. I um, used to scuba diving and all that kind of stuff and then and diving all over. I've gotten to the point I only dive in warm water, though. <laughs> yeah. No, I a, yes. I mean, it gets cold, You know, I, I'm I'm a warm water diver now. <laughs> nice, nice.
0: You know, hauling all of that payloaded mass would, would uh, require a lot of cargo ships to to transport them on the ocean.
1: Yes, but uh, on the other hand, we'd be a insignificant dot on the amount of cargo moved compared to what they're moving today. I mean, the cargo ships are remarkable. We have a guy we call the we've given him the title as the Earthport Harbor Master and he retired from the LA Harbor and he was in the design team engineer for 40 years with the LA Harbor and he really really understands the logistics side of movement of cargo and so he's he's helping us understand the remarkable Transportation infrastructure around the globe. We're calling it intermodalism. In other words, you can you can have a package say at FedEx. We see the space elevator as a third dimension, intermodalism. But so we have a box that would be similar to or identical to a canister that is delivered to the earthport, and then we take the payload out and put it on the tether climber, and uh, then we go get that same box gets put back on a ship and go someplace to pick up more boxes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. but we would be a small component, just a small little part of the tremendous transportation infrastructure around the globe I didn't even think
0: of that component uh, amazing and you know, whichever city and, and country um, uh, you know, the space elevator would be in there, there would be a huge increase in the in, the, in that national kind of space ecosystem and, and local activity. You know, what, what's your take on the uh, space elevators on the other uh, planetary
1: bodies? And- well, I did a paper uh, five, six years ago, which was, uh, who's first, Earth, lunar, or Mars space elevator? And uh, it's a very simple answer. The answer is that we need space elevators wherever humans are going to go on asteroids, Mars, lunar, whatever, because they're a very good infrastructure for moving mass. Now, the question was which would be first, and it's silly to think about an elevator any place but on the Earth, because if you put one on Mars, we still don't have any missions going there. If you put one on the Moon, we have no, we have no customer demand. Until you can move mass and people off of the earth in large numbers, we have no need for infrastructure elsewhere. Now, we need to have a colony on the moon in the near future, a research facility like the Russians and the Chinese are talking about, or a NASA, European, Indian, Japan uh, combination little place on the, uh, on the surface of the moon moved by Shackleton Crater, like Mr. Bezos one. We're going to have to have people there for research facilities and stuff like that. But until we can move a lot of mass inexpensively, daily, routinely, those places are not going to be significant in the sense of a lot of numbers and stuff. It'll be significant in history and significant in science and significant in so many right ways, but we're not going to have colonies develop ro- routinely robustly until we can move everything off the earth. And so therefore, the earth space elevator is the first priority and should be done in the near future. Uh, Once you get that done, earth, I mean, space elevators on Mars moons is an excellent way to move stuff down. Uh, The lunar space elevator is a great idea. I calculated that in 1982 uh i did all the calculation i was doing a dissertation on tethers in space and i said what happens if you anchor it to the moon and i did that calculation and then i went to work uh and uh never published it so i got the number someplace <laughs> but i've been thinking about that for for many many years so I, I think the answer is we need to have lunar space elevators and martian space elevators but first let's solve the earth gravity well issue
0: yes yes can agree more and Uh, how many space elevators do you believe will be
1: on Earth by the end of this century? I think we'll have six space elevators from the competition. In other words, whoever puts up the first one is going to be king of space for a long time. And then you're going to immediately put up a second one right next to the first one because whoever invested the 15 million dollars is going to want to have a backup in case the first one has a problem so you don't want to lose the investment and and besides you we don't want to be captured by gravity again so we need to have a second one put up immediately and it would be just part of the infrastructure cost you build the first one and put up the next one. and then okay let's say china does that first then the u.s ain't going to be far behind and uh europeans and the indians might go for the one out there in the indian ocean Or, you know, maybe they'll put one in the Atlantic. I believe there'll be three pairs of space elevators by 2050, no problem. Then, depends on how robustly we want to leave the planet and how robustly we need to supply space solar power or the L1 sunshade or the movement of nuclear high-level waste off of the planet. It depends on what the customers demand. And I could see you know, easily uh, six galactic harbors. We're calling a pair of them a galactic harbor where it's a single enterprise and two tethers. Uh, six galactic harbors or even 10 galactic harbors. I think it just depends on how much you're really going to robustly do. If you, So many times I've gone to the parallel of the Intercontinental Railroad And it's intercontinental wherever, you know, across India, across Europe, across wherever. Uh, Once you have the first one, then other people want to compete. (laughs) And then once you have the second one and the mass is moving, everybody says we need a third one or a fourth one or whatever. I'm going to move and I'm going to just move stuff on the northern tier. I'm going to move stuff through the desert on the south. And I'm going to, you know, there's plenty of competition once we achieve the first one and prove that it works. So my guess is six space elevators by 2050, competitively operating against each other, and then many more after that.
0: Wow, well, uh, this is really exciting. Um, and, I, you know, myself and, and, and a lot of us listening, I think, you know, we we love to see everything you guys are doing uh, at, at ISEC and... Um, and, and yeah, keep up the uh, amazing work. Um,
1: okay, well, thank you for this opportunity. And if you let me know when you... Awesome. i uh, send it your way. Yeah, thanks a lot for everything. I appreciate the uh, opportunity here. And and I love to talk about my favorite topic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, really exciting. Uh, okay, we'll do. And, and thanks so much for, for your time, Pete. Uh, no problem. Really. Bye.